Hello and welcome to the anniversary episode of Battlecast, the show where we talk about the greatest battles in history. I'm Luke and I'm joining the bunker by the man who makes Trump seem subdued and introverted. I'm talking about Chris, ladies and gentlemen. Chris, can you believe we've been doing this for a year already? No, I can't, Luke. <laughs> How you doing, buddy? I'm alright. You enjoying the new year? Yeah, it's a good year. Uh, yeah, I just got back from my whirlwind trip to the left coast to see my Georgia Bulldogs take on the Oklahoma Sooners and the granddaddy of them all, the Rose Bowl. Whoa, <laughs> It had been 75 years since our Bulldogs, led by Heisman winner Frank Sinkwich and Charlie Trippy, defeated UCLA 9 0 in our last, in last appearance in that storied stadium. Well, I'm glad you had fun. I knew you had fun because of all the drunken text messages you were sending me. All of you in the audience, Chris sent me about 30 blurred pictures of something vaguely green, a couple of shots of his pocket, and this wonderful text, quote, Fun game. Bet you wish you were mom at the hotel. Love you. End quote. <laughs> <laughs> that's actually better than the text you send me when you're sober. Well, that's because, you know, where our seats were, if there was a bright center of the field, we were located in the seats that was farthest from. <laughs> well, all I want you to know what life is like when you don't have 18 kids living in a bunker. Viva Las Vegas. All right, well, guys, Chris, we've covered some epic battles this past year. The three-part series on Iwo Jima was very special to me, and I know a lot of you guys have written in saying you liked that one. But, Chris, which one was your favorite? I really enjoyed the Alamo episode we did. I think we really started to find our stride there as a, as a podcast. <laughs> yeah, me too. Well, guys, I want you to thank you for sharing the show on social media. If I could speak tonight, social media. It really makes a big difference to us all, and we sure do appreciate it. But now it's time to dive back into the epic story of modern warfare that is the Battle of Mogadishu. But before we can do that, we have to do the most important thing. Oh yeah, what's that? Is it arm your children and carve out a small part of North Georgia for ourselves? Battle Castlevania forever! <laughs> no, baby. Crack open a few of those ice-cold beers. Right here! All right, today we're drinking Tusker Beer. Tusker Beer is brewed in Kenya by East African breweries, and it's often exported like tanks and firearms to its neighbor Somalia. Tusker is an Irish-style lager that pours a clear yellow and comes in at 4.2% alcohol, which is good because we tend to lose Chris by the end of the show with some of these high-alcohol beers. Hey, don't let me tell you about the time you passed out while recording the episode on Dien Bien Phu drinking that piss-poor Vietnamese beer. Hey, I don't know what you're talking about. Anyways... Chris, drinks to you, buddy. What do you think of this beer? Have you ever tasted purple? <laughs> I'm tasting it right now with this beer. <laughs> well, I mean, it, it, it's it's almost like there's a pattern with all these third world country beers we drink. <laughs> That's true. And they're all like a crappy lager. <laughs> it's not bad. It's Chris. This has a funky taste to it. This I'm is better really than enjoying. the, uh, of course, I know everybody drills this on. It's better than the Chinese beer. Yeah, I think it's better than the Vietnamese beer we drink. I really think so. Yeah, after I have a few sips off of it and the turpentine gets flowing, <laughs> I'm really starting to feel this, this antifreeze ain't too bad. Well, uh, you know, I've kind of got a bad aftertaste off this. I think we found another shining example of mediocrity here, Chris. I'm going to give this beer 2.5 volts out of 5. I know a lot of you think we go too high with some of these beers, but I give almost any beer at least a 2 because I love beer in general. I love beer. Still, Tusker, like all beer on the planet... Soundly defeats the Chinese beer we drank in episode one, and Tusker is yet another lawnmower beer we found from the third world. Well, nothing will be as bad as that Dan Ben food beer, but Tusker is just a standard lager that's probably only good if you're in East Africa and that's all you can get. With that, let's fly to the Horn of Africa and the nation of Somalia 
for the Battle of Mogadishu. Now, how were you shot down? The, uh, the RPG, a rocket-propelled grenade, is exactly what it's called. It's a, it's a very unsophisticated weapon. They've been around for a long time. There's lots of them in the world, unfortunately. And uh, it's a, not a huge warhead, but big enough that if it hits a helicopter in, in, in any of the major areas, it, it'll cause significant damage. And it hit us just below the tail rotor, which is the small rotor on, on the back of a Blackhawk. And it ultimately caused that entire rotor to depart the aircraft. It disintegrated and came apart. That causes the aircraft to enter into a violent spin, and that's, that's what happened. It was a uh, very, very, very violent crash. The aircraft uh, fortunately landed on the wheels, but it, it came down at a high rate of speed, and uh, it snapped my femur in half, which is your thigh bone. My right femur cracked in two on the seat, and it crushed the vertebrae in my spine and uh, knocked me unconscious. And then you came to immediately after that? I, you know, I can't really say for sure, but I would estimate it was about five minutes when I finally realized uh, you, you kind of come out of this syrupy fog, if you will. You, you're not sure what's going on. It's almost dreamlike. And then you, your, your brain starts to sort it all out and you realize, oh, okay, this is real. I, I'm, I'm now in the middle of yet another firefight and we're isolated, cut off, and, and surrounded. And there were three other people with you in the helicopter? Yes. What happened to them? We all survived the crash. The crew chiefs in the back had pretty severe injuries, even worse than mine, from what I could tell. But they were alive. The problem was we were all immobile. None of us could move, and I couldn't, I couldn't even get out of the aircraft. And uh, the crew chiefs, the, the two uh, soldiers in the back, they couldn't even move. Uh, Ray Frank, my co-pilot, was actually able to partially get himself out of the aircraft. And at about that point, these two incredibly courageous uh, Delta Force operators arrived at the side of, of the cockpit on, on my side, Gary Gordon and Randy Shugart. All right, I thought now would be a good time to re recap and to pick up from the last episode. If you remember from last month, it's October 3rd, 1993, and we stopped right as the relief convoy which was attempting and repeatedly failing to reach the first crash site, is called back to base. It's vehicles resembling Swiss cheese more than Humvees. At this point in the battle, we have two groups of Americans still on the ground in Mogadishu. we got about 90 men defending the first Black Hawk crash site, but there are numerous wounded among them. Also, we have a second Black Hawk that has crashed eight city blocks to the south of the first crash. There is one survivor at the second crash site, Mike Durant, the pilot. Two Delta operators, Randy Shigart and Gary Gordon, volunteered to defend Mike until a relief force arrives. And since the first half of the battle is over, I thought Chris could share his halftime report with us now. All right, Luke. Um, at this point in the battle, you have mostly Somali hordes with AK-47s and um, RPGs, RPGs assaulting a much more uh, heavily technologically advanced American force. Totally agree. Totally agree. Um... What would you think, how, how would you characterize the American assault force at this time? Mainly the group around the first crash site. Okay, we have a mixed bag here. We've got SEALs, a small smattering of SEALs, very few. We've got Delta operators there. We have a special 
Air Force uh, Search and Rescue Special mm-hmm. Forces that's there on the ground, too. And it's mostly comprised of rangers. Now, all the dead, all the living crash uh, site victims from the first crash have been removed on the little birds. Yeah. So we only have uh, fatalities left on the ground. Left on the ground. Yeah. From the first crash site. Then the second crash site has the two Delta operators along with Durant. Yeah. Yeah. Now, back at the first crash site, these guys are getting hammered. We're going to talk more about it in the rest of the show. But, I mean, the city is massing on them. And I want you to think of the L.A. riots. I want you to think of total chaos. If you've seen Black Hawk Down, those pictures that they put on there were actually subdued. Because the actual crowds were so violent and so chaotic, they... Do you watered it down for the movie? Anyways, do you, do you think a deed or anybody is directing the battle on the Somali side at this point, or it's all just vague directions from a deed are the rule of the day? So a deed's like if you get an opportunity, take out the Americans. What is happening is you have local gangs on a street level, hmm. and sometimes they're loosely tied to an overarching gang. But you have a leader at the street level. Okay. Yeah. And he is leading his group, and they are working in concert with other street-level gangs. Small groups of men, usually related by blood or, or close proximity to Family each other. Family tribe, yeah. Family neighbors. And, they, and these people are forming, are forming up, and they're blocking roads, strategically blocking roads. That's right. Road blocks. We've got massive road blocks. Some that tanks can't even get through, mm. and that men are going to have to pull apart. Because the Somali trick, which is really smart, is they put... Uh, mines inside the roadblock. So when the Humvee drives through it, boom, what happens? Boom, no more Humvee. Yeah, so they have to dismantle these roadblocks by hand when that yeah. happens because some of the men are afraid. All right, now we can juxtapose that with the American side where the commander in country who's, who's directing the American forces is General Garrison. That's right. Garrison is, if you remember from the first episode we talked about him, he's highly trained. He's a career man. He's toured on the ground in battlefields of Vietnam. He was part of a special operation in Vietnam that sought out guerrillas in the Vietnam countryside <laughs> in the Phoenix program. He's battle-hardened. He's battle-tested. And he was also a Delta uh, commander for a long time, too. So this is his step up from that. So he knows how the Delta people operate. He's he's been involved in wars across the world. He's a strong military leader and an intelligent leader. And this is and this battle's always gone sideways on him. And if you you know everybody out there who's old enough to remember knows that um, this battle took place not too long after Bill Clinton became president. That's right. So this battle is highly politicized. And yes. Yes. It, it's got to be it's got to be a nightmare at this point for him. He's already lost American lives, lost American equipment. Everything's shot up, and nobody knows what's going on. It's chaos. It is chaos, and there is a. A feeling by Garrison that things are taking too long to organize the relief column. It's going to take hours for the large relief force. Now, in Garrison's defense, he sent another relief column in. That's not in the movie Black Hawk Down, by the way. Hmm. He sent it to try to penetrate the roadblocks. The fire in the roadblocks were so heavy, the men could not penetrate it. They needed heavier equipment, heavier vehicles. So now they're massing tanks from a multinational force to yeah. go in, but it takes longer than they expected. Because the multinational, it's the UN force, but right. the UN only has loose, chem- loose control of, was it Pakistanis or it's Indians? It's Pakistani tanks and Malaysian 
uh, also are going to help in the large force that's formed. But they all have separate commands they have to answer Think to, of to this. organize the you, We're going to talk about this later. Separate radio systems. How do you communicate okay. with each other? Yeah. Think and, all, we're going to get into that later. And as, we, yeah. as we've done this multiple times, the key to modern warfare is communication. It's one key to it. A huge key. You know yeah. what I mean? And Garrison, by the way, I just want to keep point out that he was smart enough to realize he needed to get another force back out there. Yeah. And he did send it. All right. And with that, what do you think? We ready to go on? Sounds like we've recapped everything. All right. Great halftime report. Let's dive back into the battle. Now, the 90 men at the first crash site are fighting for their lives and believe they will be relieved at any moment. They think help's coming because Garrison sent that help we talked about during the halftime report. It just couldn't get there. But they think it's going to be there soon in 30, 40 minutes. After all, you know, he, they've been told repeatedly it's coming. So while the men at the first crash site are holding the perimeter against thousands of Somalis, just three men are fighting first hundreds and then thousands of Somalis at the second crash site. One of these men, Black Hawk pilot Mike Durant, has a broken back and numerous injuries at the time, including a leg that's been broken. Two Delta snipers, Randy Shigar and Gary Gordon, like a second Fingolfin facing down the Somali Morgoth, attempt to break the tide of Somalis hurtling towards their position. It's important to note that Shigar and Gordon volunteered to go in defend Durant's position. To their credit, they first made a Helleborn reconnoiter of the battle position, judging they could defend the position or perhaps move the wounded to an open field 50 yards away where they could be exfiltrated. It wasn't a complete foolhardy plan, is what I'm getting at. And I don't think that comes across enough in the movie. These guys didn't just say, put me in. Yeah. They did their. They they were smart. They, they went about. They weren't it. just laying on the sword. They were like, "All right, this is how we can maybe get out of here." Exactly. Now they knew it was super risky. Oh yeah. But it looked better. And they they before we get into this, I want to emphasize they didn't predict how fast the Somali crowds could materialize there. Yeah. I the crowds was, came too fast. That was that was everybody's surprise in this battle is how or, how seemingly organized and how fast these crowds materialized. They come so fast, it was hard to believe. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, here's how one journalist describes Shigart and Gordon. They were experts at killing and staying alive. They were serious, career soldiers, trained to get hard and ugly things done. They saw opportunity where others could only see danger. Like the other Delta operators, they pride themselves on staying cool and effective, even in extreme danger. They live and train endlessly for moments like this. If there was a chance to succeed, these two believed they would, so long as they were given... Even a tiny chance, they felt obligated to give it to the down crew. When Master Sergeant Mason Hall passed word up to the men that it was time to jump, Gordon grinned and gave an excited thumbs up. End quote. The pilot held a hover about five feet up and the Delta operators jumped. At the same time, Mike Durant was waking up in the crashed Black Hawk. The windshield was shattered and there was a sheet of tin draped over him. His femur was broken. The big bone snapped on the edge of his seat. Mike picked up his MP5K German 9mm submachine gun. That's when Shigart and Gordon appeared. They reached in and lifted Durant out of the helicopter and laid him down beside a tree. The pain raked his body. With the helicopter body, the, the body of the airframe is what I'm talking about, not Mike's body. And a wall joined behind him to form a sort of barrier... And he had a wall to his left, too, that ran to the other end of the chopper. Durant was in a strong position for covering the right side of the aircraft. So there's a little gap that he's able to cover the backs of the two Delta operators that are helping him. That's what I'm getting at. He's surrounded by the airframe of the body of the helicopter and two walls. Okay. 
Now, at this time, right when he gets out, there's little fire from the Somalis. The Delta boys checked on the rest of Durant's crew. They had absorbed the full shock of the crash and were dead or dying. Meanwhile, the crowd surrounded the crash site and was growing exponentially. Each time the Black Hawk passed over the crowd, the crowd would scatter, but it would reclose behind the chopper. One pilot said it was like running his hand through water. Shigart and Gordon, using Mike Durant to guard their back, had set up a perimeter around the bird. Once they reached the site, the Delta operators believed moving the wounded crew was out of the question. They would have to make a stand at the crash site. While Shigart and Gordon fought for their lives, another third helicopter, trying to help the Delta operators, was hit by yet another RPG and made a mad dash for the American base. It barely made it back, but it made it. At the same time, Mike Durant thought Shigart and Gordon were part of a large rescue force. So he thinks he's been saved. This is it. Everybody. Yeah, everybody's here. And his battle was basically over. Mike could only see through a 15-foot gap, but he heard the sounds of a devastating firefight taking place on the other side of the crash helicopter. Mike describes his role in the second crash perimeter this way. I fired one time through the wall. There was a there was a tin wall on the side here, and it was obviously Somalis. I could hear them talking. And uh, to be honest with you, at that point, the rules of engagement are the last thing in my mind. Uh, this is a desperate situation, and and my first reaction is keep the Somalis away from this crash site. So I fired a bunch of rounds through the wall, uh, and those people went away. And I fired. A couple of rounds and a couple of guys that tried to come around the nose. Durant didn't know it at the time, but Shigart and Gordon were single-handedly fighting thousands of Somali militia in a battle for their lives and his. Mark Bowden takes up the story. Mike heard one of the operators, it was Gary Gordon, cry out that he was hit. Just a quick shout of anger and pain, he didn't hear the voice again. The other one, it was Randy Shigart, came back to Durant's side of the bird. Are there weapons on board? He asked. There were. The crew chiefs carried M-16. Durant told him where they were kept, and Shigart stepped into the craft and returned with two of them. He handed Durant Gordon's weapon, a CAR-15 loaded and ready to fire. What's the support frequency on the survival radio? Shigart asked. It was then, for the first time, that it dawned on Durant that they were stranded. His insides folded into origami. Adrenaline released in a waterfall diluted his blood. If Shigart was asking how to set up communications, it meant he and the other guy had come in on their own. There was no rescue team. It was just them. And Gordon had just been shot. Shigart radioed for help and was told a reaction force was on its way. Durant's heart was leapfrogging into his throat. He had to keep the Somalis back. Two Somalis tried to climb over the fin of the helicopter. Durant shot at them and sent them scurrying. The Somalis were literally coming out of the woodwork at him. One man climbed over a wall. Durant brought him down with a burst of fire. Another crawled around a corner holding an AK. Durant sent him to all his arms. From the sky, the command reported seeing this. Indigenous personnel moving all around the crash site. Indigenous? The command element at base asked. That's affirmative. Over. This was the end game. The queen and the king overwhelmed by thousands of pawns. The Somalis swarmed over the position. Terror washed over Durant. He heard the sounds of an angry mob. There was no more shooting. The others must be dead. Durant knew what an angry Somali mob could do. Gruesome, horrible things. That was now in store for him. His second weapon was empty. He still had a pistol strapped to his side, but he never even thought to reach for it. I want you to listen to Mike describe what it was like waiting for the mob. Think about the worst things in your life and all your problems and be grateful you weren't called on to make this sacrifice. 
probably the most scared I was in the whole ordeal was right then because I could. What I think is that they all came from over here. Uh, there was obviously a lot more debris uh, at the time, and I could hear them throwing stuff out of the way, and uh, it was just an angry, violent mob. And uh, we had been told that they did some pretty. Uh, gruesome things to the Nigerians when they overran them uh, in a fight prior to this one. And uh, kind of thought that that's what was in store for me. Uh, I was out of rounds again with this, this second weapon, and uh, st I still had a pistol on my side, and I never even thought of it. I, it never even came into my mind. I don't know why. I was totally focused on the, on the rifle. Mm -hmm. And I had a survival knife, and that was all I had left. Uh, Never thought about killing myself. Some people have asked me that question. Uh, first guy that came around the nose, I'm pretty sure they thought they had killed everybody. Uh, they just didn't see me. Well, no, I, I felt like death was imminent right there. I mean, it's, I didn't feel like uh, there was going to be any other outcome to that particular situation. Mm -hmm. And uh, I just I put the weapon across my chest and put my hands on it, just like that, laid back and looked up in the air. And uh, I saw the movement out of the corner of my eye when the first guy came around, and uh, I looked at him, and he, he stopped short. That's why I'm pretty sure they thought everybody was dead. Uh, and again, I don't know for sure that everybody was dead. I don't know that everybody was killed right there. Uh, they might have died later. I have no way of knowing that. I have to assume that they were, but I don't know. Mm -hmm. uh, the mob descended on Durant. One man struck him in the face with a rifle butt, shattering his nose and the bone around his eye. People grabbed him by the legs and arms. They began to tear at his clothes. The whole time he was being kicked and hit, Mike was engulfed in a great wave of hatred and anger. He was beaten from on all sides. One man reached up, grabbed his genitals, and pulled with all her might. The pain was unbearable. Chris, could you imagine what this would be like? What's that, having my femur shattered and back broken, crashing in a helicopter? A hostile force of hundreds of angry, starving third worlds grabbing at my broken body while celebrating a language I can't possibly understand, knowing I'm going to die in the most horrible way possible very soon, and then my deceased corpse dragged around for display to the city streets? Yeah, sorry, got nothing on that, but I'm going to guess it sucked. It did suck. Durant later said that at this moment he left his body. He seemed to be floating above the crowd. He felt no pain. And then he simply passed out. Meanwhile, the Somalis were hacking at the bodies of the dead Americans with knives and began to hack at their limbs, dismembering them. In the sky, the spy plane zoomed in. The American command commanders gagged at what they saw. The sight beaming from the video feed was from some other world, some ancient Lovecraftian nether world. The crowd was dancing and parading with the dismembered limbs of the Americans, laughing and bathing in the blood of heroes. Chigart and Gordon would posthumously be awarded the Medal of Honor. They gave the ultimate sacrifice, and because of them, Mike Durant's children have a father. All I can add is what Christ said, Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. As for Durant, he was taken hostage by a powerful militia, bounced across town, endured countless humiliations, such as being tied up with a dog chain. He was tortured, and he endured endless threats, and while captured, he was even shot. He describes the hostage situation like this. Like a patio kind of building. It seemed like it was octagon shaped and it had solid block halfway up, and then you know, the blocks that have 
basically crosses in them and the air flows through right. on the top half. So it's kind of like a uh, like a garden house kind of looking thing. Mm -hmm. uh, no furniture in there, one door. Mental victories I had was getting out of that chain later on that night. Uh, they, they didn't do a very good job of chaining me up and I got out of it. Well, I, when they had done it, I was, of course, laying down. I had my arms like this, and they did it around my wrist, and there was enough slack that I was perspiring profusely, so there was a lot of lubrication on my skin, and I was able to actually squeeze one hand out uh, along the other wrist. Mm -hmm. Small thing to most people, but incredibly uh, morale, or incredibly uplifting, I guess, thinking that, you know, I at least had done something against them, and uh, I was able to do things like get the dirt out of my eyes, and straighten out my leg, get a little bit more comfortable. You know? I thought that the boys were coming to get me, because the fighting was going on right outside the door. Uh, what I think happened is the column of the APCs or something came right by where I was, because uh, the guys that were actually in the compound I was in were shooting out. So I thought I thought somebody had somehow tracked me, and uh, uh, they were going they were actually in the process of trying to rescue me because I don't at this point don't know what's going going on with the rest of the mission. I don't know Cliff and Donovan and they're dead. Right. You know, I don't know any of this stuff. Right. So uh, uh, there's a firefight going on. Oh, right right outside. Outside. I could hear the Mark 19s. I could hear uh, what I thought were tow missiles or possibly. Uh, Mark 19s. I've never been downrange for any of these weapon systems before, so I don't know. I know what they sound on the shooting end, but not on the receiving end. Mm -hmm. uh, I was obvious about the 7.62 and the rockets that were going off out there. Uh, but uh, it was marching right toward me. It kept getting louder and louder and louder. And the guys, they were, of course, they were getting really agitated, and they would come in and, uh, you know, threatening me, and I kind of thought that uh, they'd shoot me if, in fact, it was a rescue, but. Uh, Unfortunately, or unfortunately, I guess, I don't know, I survived. And the, 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 the fight just continued to march out and it faded away. I'm trying to figure out where the hell I was. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was the first place that came to mind. To this day, I don't know where I was. Okay. Uh, but it was just so different. You know, the sun was coming through those those holes, and I could hear the birds singing, the kids playing. It was just such a, a change from a few hours earlier. Mm -hmm. uh, the quiet got shattered there at one point when uh, somebody decided that uh, they want to take matters in their own hand. They stuck a, a weapon through the door and fired around at me, which fortunately uh, hit the uh, floor before it hit me, but it did end up in my in my left shoulder. Mm. Uh, and I never saw the person. I only saw the weapon. Mike eventually ended up with Farimbi, the propaganda minister for Adid. Adid had paid Durant's ransom to get him back. America would have to negotiate with Adid. After 11 days in that captivity, Durant was released and returned home to his six children. At the end of the battle for the second crash site, Shigart and Gordon, with Durant's help, had killed 25 Somalis and wounded many more. They died fighting. How does Michael feel about the situation today? Here's what he had to say. For a long time, I was pretty bitter about the whole thing because, you know, my friends are dead and within 90 days, the U.S. withdrew all forces from Somalia and basically gave up. There was a time when I cried every day. It would be a wave of emotion that just came over me. My friends are dead, and if that doesn't bother you, then you are made of something different than I am. Now, if I had faced challenges or setbacks, I put in perspective by saying, 
I should be, I should be dead. I've been given the second life that's almost as long as my first life at this point. And you, listener, what setbacks bother you? I guarantee it's nothing compared to what Michael Durant went through. Remember what Shakespeare had to say. Poor and content is rich. Yeah, I always prefer the first thing we do is kill all the lawyers. And with that, let's pause for a short beer break. You knew it was coming. It's our anniversary show, and it's this time of year we make our fundraising. Hey, everybody, give us money. You know why? <laughs> because we deserve it. Why do we deserve it? Because... We do podcasts, and podcasts is deserving of money because money is good, and podcasts are good, and this is a good podcast, so send us money. <laughs> well, Chris, that was great. Well, guys, we appreciate you listening to the show so much, and we are so thankful for everyone who writes in, shares on social media, and subscribes. It's true. It's a dream come true for us. However, Battlecast is listener-supported. Gifts of any size from our audience help us bring you the invaluable stories of epic warfare and heroism which only we can bring. No other show is dedicated and committed to the in-depth research and timely scheduling that we provide to you. No other show tells the stories we tell. We've grown from an audience of tens to hundreds to thousands, and we could never have done it without you, and we can't do it without your support. Arms for the poor! Arms for the poor! Yes, dear listener, if you're enjoying this contest, please head to our website and throw us some of those shekels. I promise you that 10% of that money will go to feed sober drunks from the North Georgia bunker all the way to the North Atlanta Ivory Tower. Sober drunks? What is that? That's, um, it'll keep us from being sober. (laughs) Oh, all right. Yeah, you're going to make us unsober. So come on. If you want to help us in our mission to tell the epic stories of battle with passion and fidelity, you can help us by going to thebattlecast.com and making a donation by PayPal or credit card today. Just hit the Make a Donation button on the website to make that donation. If you're feeling really compassionate, you can make it a recurring donation. I I wouldn't tell you to do something that I wouldn't do myself. I've already made my donation today. You have? I didn't get my cut. Remember our deal. I get 90% of everything we make before I give you the 50-50 split on the remaining 10. That's just simple math, buddy. (laughs) All right. So, guys, remember that's thebattlecast.com. Check it out. Make a donation. And now that our annual pledge drive is over, let's dive back into the battle. Thank God. All right. We're back. Now, at the same time that Duran is fighting for his life at the second crash site, 90 American soldiers are battling for their life at the first crash site. Here's how one commentator describes the position. Quote, The American forces around Wolcott's down Blackhawk were now scattered along an L-shaped perimeter stretching south. One group of about 30 men was massed around the wreck in the alleyway at the northern leg of the upside-down letter L. When they learned that the ground convoy had gotten lost, they began moving the wounded into the house behind the crash site. Immediately west of the alley was Marahan Road, where four rangers were dug in across the street at the northwest corner. On the east side of that intersection, nearest the chopper, were three rangers and two Delta operators. The rest of the ground force was stretched out south on Marahan Road, along the stem of the upside-down letter L. Steele and a dozen or so rangers, along with the three Delta teams, about 30 men in all, were together in a courtyard on the east side of Marahan Road, midway up the next block south, separated from the bulk of the force by half a block. A wide alley and a long block. Another group of rangers and Delta operators were spread along the east side of the long stem of the upside-down letter L. End quote. 
Guys, put it simply, we've got maps up on the website. <laughs> I highly suggest you check it out. Yeah, that's a good idea. Now, this is kind of confusing depiction, so let me simplify this for you. To give you an idea of how these troops are spread out on the ground, I want you to picture two city blocks on the street. Chris, you doing it? Two city blocks on a street. You should see his face. He's drooling. There's a little snot. I see his huge bald spot. Uh, I think his wife just texted that she's leaving him. It's great. All right, so here we go. To give you an idea, you got two city blocks. The American troops are spread out in six buildings along two city blocks, like I told you, most on the right-hand side of the street. However, there's one group of Delta soldiers on the left-hand side of the street. Now, if you're looking from the top, like in Google Maps, the helicopter is down at the top, the northernmost section of the two blocks you're looking down on, like in Google Maps. Most of the Rangers, led by Captain Steele, are in a building on the southern end of the map you're looking down like, like your god, you're looking down on it. The Delta boys are spread along in the middle. At the crash site, the search and rescue team is mixed in with the early Ranger arrivals with a Delta team holed up on the left flank. Alright, so let's simplify this. Most of the Rangers are at the bottom. At the top is the crash site. And in the middle, along the two blocks... The Delta team is stre- is stretched out. Thanks, Luke. That totally clarifies it. Remember, thebattlecast.com for the maps. <laughs> all right. Well, I tried. All right. So let's get back to it. Now, it is 4.40 p.m., and a team of search and rescue soldiers are examining the inside of the crash. Called pararescue men, or PJs, the men are trained to be the first reaction force when things go wrong in a combat situation. They find a number of crew killed or wounded at the first crash site. That's when PJ, Tim Wilkinson, saw desert fatigues in a pile of avionics equipment. I think there's somebody else in there, he said. The pararescue men worked like madmen to free the trap gunner Ray Dowdy. He had been smashed by equipment when the first chopper crashed. Wrestling with the equipment, Wilkinson was able to free Dowdy when a storm of bullets started snapping around them, randomly punching finger holes into the aircraft's skin. The man danced involuntarily as the bullets snapped and whizzed past them. Bits of metal, plastic, paper, and fabric flew all around them like confetti in the air. Suddenly, it stopped. Wilkinson checked himself. He'd been hit in the face and the arm. His fellow PJ had been hit in the hand. Dowdy, who had just been freed from an agonizing wreck he couldn't even move in, had two fingers shot off. Ouch. They had to save him then, right? Meanwhile, along the perimeter, the Delta operators and Rangers were in a fight for their lives. Grenades were lobbed into their positions. RPGs punched holes into the walls. Bullets were everywhere. With so many troops scattered and arriving at different times, friendly fire was also a problem. This battle is going to last well into the early morning hours, past midnight. During this time, the Americans are engaged in a protracted firefight. I want to tell you some of the most salient parts of this battle for Crash Site 1. One Ranger named Nelson was firing on an enemy position when a Delta operator accosted him. What are you doing? Sergeant Howe screamed at him. I saw someone in there. Howe was epileptic with rage. No shit, they're friendlies in there, damn it. Howe began venting at the Rangers. He felt they weren't fighting hard enough. The Rangers were trying to selectively target armed Somalis in the crowd. Infuriated, Howe lobbed a grenade into the midst of the entire crowd. The crowd scattered, taking the gunmen with them. How then watched rangers try to shoot a gunman who kept darting in and out from a shed. The Delta sergeant flung a mini-grenade behind the shed. The gunman did not reappear. How picked up a law rocket and hurled it across the road. Take this! It landed on the arm of Specialist Lance Twomley. The law bruised his forearm. Twomley jumped to his knees, angry, and turned to hear Hal yell, 
Shoot the mother- Meanwhile, Ranger Sergeant Elliot took cover behind a shed with Corporal Smith and Lieutenant Perino. Rounds seemed to be coming from everywhere. Stone chips sprayed from the wall over Perino's head. He saw a Somali with a gun on the opposite side of the street. He was creeping up onto another American position. It would be hard to hit the guy with a rifle shot, but Smith had a grenade launcher on his M16. He moved up to tap Smith on the shoulder because there was too much noise to communicate verbally when bullets began popping loudly through the shed. Lieutenant Perino was on one knee when a round spat dirt between his legs. That was too close, he thought. That's when Smith got tagged. The burly corporal had moved down the street fast. He took a knee to shoot when everyone around him heard the round hit. Like a slap or a loud high five, Smith began to scream, I'm hit! I'm hit! He was writhing. It was a terrible situation. He was losing blood fast. Perino smashed a field dressing into the wound, but blood water fountain in spurts around the edges of the field dressing. I've got a bleeder here, Perino yelled. Delta Medic, Sergeant Kurt Schmid, helped drag Smith back into the courtyard. Schmid tore off Smith's pants leg. When he took off the field dressing, blood spurted out of the wound in a long stream, like someone turning on and off a water hose. At the same time, another ranger named Rodriguez rolled away from his machine gun, bleeding and screaming. Mark Bowden picks up this story. Rodriguez felt no pain. But when he had placed his hand on the wound, his genitals felt like mush, and blood spurted thickly between his fingers. He screamed in alarm. Eight of the eleven rangers in Perino's chalk had now been hit. At the north end of the same block, there was a huge explosion, and in it, ranger specialist Stebbins went down. An RPG had streaked into the wall of the house across the alley from him. The grenade went off with a brilliant red flash and tore a chunk of the wall about four feet long. The concussion in the narrow alley was huge. It hurt the ranger's ears. That was a big cloud of dust. Stebbins was lying flat on his back, but then slowly stood up, covered in white dust, coughing and rubbing his eyes. He had made it. Tom Wilkinson, the PJ medic, ran to Rodriguez, who was bleeding heavily and very frightened. The medic cut Rodriguez's uniform off to see the damage. He had been hit by a round that entered his buttocks and and bored through his pelvis, blowing off one of his testicles as it exited through his upper thigh. Wilson stuffed wads of field dressing into Rodriguez's exit wound. He stopped the bleeding. Rodriguez would make it. Well, Chris, I'm starting to see why uh, we revere veterans so much. My goodness, the things they go through. Well, yeah, if i got to give a testicle. Testicle for your country. Thank God. Thank God. Thank God. We live a life of peace. We live in the golden age. Meanwhile, Kurt Schmidt was trying to stem the tsunami of blood spilling out of Corporal Smith's leg. The medic had first tried applying direct pressure on the wound, sending waves of agony through Smith in the process. It hadn't worked. Red blood continued to course from the hole in Smith's leg. Schmidt wadded Curlex into the hole. Still, the blood came. There was no exit wound. The bullet was lodged in Smith's leg. The bullet had entered Smith's thigh and traveled up into his pelvis. A gunshot wound to the pelvis is one of the worst. The bullet had pierced one of the femoral vessels. Schmid put pressure on Smith's abdomen, right above where the artery originated in the lower trunk of Smith's body. IVs were pouring into Smith's body as fast as possible, desperately trying to replace the precious lifeblood he was losing. Blood formed in pools on the dirt floor of the courtyard. This whole time, Schmid is convinced help is going to arrive shortly, right? Because Garrison sent that convoy. It's on its way. It's on its way. In point of fact, help did not arrive for hours. As the minutes turned to hours, Schmidt knew he would have to do something more to save Smith's life. The only way to stop the bleeding was to find the severed femoral artery and clamp it. Smith was wide-eyed with fear. Oh, shit! Oh, shit, I'm gonna die! I'm gonna die! He yelled. 
He begged for morphine, but Schmidt couldn't give it to him because it could kill him by lowering his heart rate and respiration. Mark Bowden explains what happened next. Smith bellowed as the medic reached with both hands and tore open the entrance wound. To save the young ranger, he had to treat him like an inanimate object, a machine that was broken and needed fixing, nothing more. He continued to root for the artery. If he failed to find it, Smith would probably die. He picked through the upper thigh, reaching up to the pelvis, parting layers of skin, fat, muscle, vessel, probing through pools of bright red blood. He couldn't find it. Once severed, the upper end of the artery had retreated into Smith's abdomen. The medic stopped. Smith was lapsing into shock. Schmidt was covered in blood. It was everywhere. It was hard to believe Smith had any more to even lose. Smith's words and movements became labored. He was in shock. The room smelled of blood, a strong musky stink with a faint metallic tinge like copper, an odor that one never forgets. Schmidt was running out of IV bags. He had tried everything and was feeling frustrated and angry. It was 5 o'clock when Schmidt demanded a medevac for Smith. The landing zone was too hot to risk another helicopter. Smith would have to hold on, but he couldn't hold on. The gap in time was too long, and Smith passed away on the streets of Somalia. Meanwhile, Ranger Specialist John Stebbins' heart was in his throat. Having his fellow rangers next to him kept him fighting, but mentally he wanted nothing more than to get away from this street. He had been preparing for war for years now, but in the middle of the blood, the stink, the blown apart animals, and worse still, the use of women and children as human shields and soldiers, nothing could have prepared him for that. He remembered the words of an old platoon sergeant. When war starts, a soldier wants like hell to be there. But once he's there, he wants like hell to come home. The things that happened during the hours long firefight were simply amazing. Private David Floyd watched a gray dove land in the middle of Maryhan Road during the battle. The bird scratched at the dirt, strode around on the road, oblivious to the firefight, and then flew away. A donkey pulling a wagon wandered across the intersection through one of the heaviest fields of fire and crossed the road unscathed only to return minutes later. Nobody could believe the donkey hadn't been hit. One ranger thought to himself, God loves that donkey. He just loves him. Mark Bowden tells the story of a powerful woman wearing a bright blue turban and beautiful dress that billowed behind her as she ran. The rangers fired at her. She took a few hits but kept going. The rangers hurled another fusillade of fire at her. She dropped. An RPG rolled out of the basket she was carrying. Then the woman, barely breathing, pulled herself up on all fours, grabbed an RPG round and crawled. This time, the massive ranger volley literally tore her apart. A fat 203 round blew off one of her legs. She fell in a bloody lump for a few moments, then moved again. The rangers leveled another volley into her. One ranger remembered the woman didn't even look like a human being. She had been transformed into a monstrous bleeding hulk, like something from a horror movie. Later, he looked back over. There was a large pool of blood on the street, but the woman and her RPG was gone. The ground around the ranger shook. Stebbins heard a shattering, Kabang! 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 The sound of big rounds smashing into the stone wall of the corner. The wall that had been their shield for more than an hour began to come apart. Somebody with a big gun was taking down their position. After the first shattering volley, Stebbins stepped back into the alley and returned fire. He ducked behind cover, took a knee, and kept placing rounds in the same place. Kabang! 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 Three rounds hit his corner again, and Sergeant Stebbins was knocked backward and flat on his ass. It was though someone had pulled him from behind with a rope. He felt no pain. The explosion had sucked the air out of him, and he choked for oxygen. 
He was dazed and covered with white powder from the pulverized wall. That's when anger overrode Stebbins' body. He stood up, yelling curses, and stepped into the alleyway to engage the window where the firing was coming from. An RBG, RPG exploded next to him and again knocked him over in a sea of battle litter. Still, Stebbins was unharmed. A Delta operator approached Stebbins. Where's this guy shooting from, dude? Stebbins pointed at the window. All right, we'll nail this bastard. From inside the building behind Stebbins, a Delta marksman fired three 203 grenade rounds, dropping them right into the target window like it was nothing. There was an enormous blast inside the building. Stebbins figured the round had detonated some ammo catch because there was a flash throughout the, flood, throughout the building too bright for a 203 round. The Somali heavy gun was silenced. After the Delta marksman took out the heavy Somali machine gun, Stebbins took up a position inside a building where PJ medic Tim Wilkinson removed his shoe. Stebbins was shocked to see a golf ball-sized chunk of metal lodged in his foot. He felt no pain, just numbness. The fire from the explosion had cauterized the wound. The whole lower left side of his body was burned. Wilkinson gave Stebbins a Percocet and a rifle. Here's a gun. You get to guard this window. This reminds me of my dad taking me hunting when he had a beer instead of a Percocet. At the same time, the AH-6 Little Birds were making regular gun runs around the American position on Marahan Road. The helicopters were highly effective at scattering the Somali crowds. The helicopters would come swooping in almost at ground level, flying between buildings, their mini guns blazing. It was an amazing sight. The rockets made a ripping sound and then shook the ground with their blast. The Somalis parted from the walls like Moses was parting the Red Sea. Then they surged back into the roadway after the helicopter finished its pass. While the birds made their sweeping runs on the streets, Private David Floyd was shooting at everything that moved. The world was erupting around him and shooting back seemed the only reasonable thing. No matter how many rounds Floyd sent down the street, the crowd kept creeping closer. When Floyd hit someone with rounds from his saw-like machine gun, he could see their bodies begin to twitch like they were being zapped with electricity. They would usually only make it a step or two more and then fall over. Then something slapped Floyd. Instead of looking down at his body, Floyd kept his eyes on the road, afraid he might get killed if he took his gaze away from the battle for only one second. As his hand creeped down his legs, feeling for the shot, he found his pants ripped from his crotch to his boot, but the round hadn't even scratched him. He was even wounded, but he was half-naked. Screw it, he said as he shrugged his shoulders and <laughs> continued to fight. Yeah. The fight was now raging around three square blocks of Mogadishu centered on the first Black Hawk crash. The moon was starting to rise. Still, the man fought on. However, the battle grew less fierce as the night wore on. Earlier, bullets had been coming through doors and walls, but now that stopped. Still, the men inside were running out of basic supplies. They had been fighting in equatorial conditions for hours. They had planned on a short battle raid. Water was running low. Their tongues stuck to the roof of their mouths. The taste of dust and gunpowder first annoyed and then tortured the men, who wanted nothing more than a drink of cool water. Nothing in this world would taste as sweet as a cold bottle of water. Chris, as you take another big swig of Tusker beer, mm. what do you think about that? I mean, water, something we take totally for granted, and these guys are absolutely obsessed about getting a cup. Oh, well, I mean, they've been battling, as you said, they've been battling equatorial conditions for all day and into the night. Of course they want water. I mean, you know, yeah. anybody, 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 you know, these are weak comparisons, but if you've ever practiced football in the South, <laughs> you ever practiced football for the South or an hour, all 
the sweetest water in the world or gone on a 15-mile hike through the Appalachian Mountains, you, you know, you want water. Yeah, you want... It tastes as sweet as anything you've ever had before in your life. I agree. Well, let's get back to the battle. From overhead, the commanders watched the battle take shape through infrared cameras. Masses of Somalis circled the perimeter like tigers looking for an undefended infiltration zone. They were sending three and six-man teams to probe the American position, trying to figure out exactly where the Americans were and what they were doing. Adid's militia was trucking in fighters from other parts of the city. The little birds made wall-rattling guns run, gun runs throughout the night. One of the birds shot a Somali carrying an RPG with a 17-pound rocket. He lit up like a Roman candle. When the chopper went back to refuel, they found pieces of the man's body pancaked to their windshield. At the same time, Sergeant Mike Goodell was coming to terms with the fighting he was living through. He had never seen anything like it. He thought about what a terrible thing it was to have turned his life over to the U.S. government. <laughs> and because of that, he might die in this godforsaken back room in a godforsaken country. He thought about how much he wanted to go to war to see combat. And then he thought about all those great war movies he'd seen about battles. He knew he'd never see another of those films and feel the same way again. People really get killed, he said to himself. He found the best way to accept the predicament was just to assume he was already dead. He was already dead. He just kept on doing his job until it became reality. General Garrison hadn't been eating lunch this whole time. He planned to amass an unstoppable force that would roll in and over anything a deed could throw at him. The heart of the gigantic relief convoy Garrison was massing was 28 Malaysian armored personnel carriers and four Pakistani tanks. The total convoy numbered almost 100 vehicles and was two miles long with enough firepower to blow their own roads through the city if they need to. <laughs> there was a problem. Many of the Malaysians and Pakistanis didn't speak English well. Their officers spoke decent English, but it still made coordinating the convoy and working together with the convoy plowing through a city slow and difficult. Another problem with the international force is the radios in the vehicles couldn't communicate with each other. Precious time was lost as the Americans installed and checked American radio equipment in the Malaysian and Pakistani vehicles. More time was lost as the Americans worked with their foreign counterparts to create fire control procedures, steps to prevent friendly fire, call signs, the route, and a host of other critical issues. By 11 p.m., the men went in around 3.30. After the men in the city had been fighting for over eight hours, the convoy was finally ready to go. The Pakistani tanks took the lead. Behind them, each platoon would have four APCs interspersed with trucks and Humvees. They rolled to a staging point on National Street, and then half would go to the first crash site, while the other half made their way to the second crash site. A problem happened almost immediately. The Pakistanis didn't want to lead the operation. The officers made a compromise. The tanks would lead the way out for the first few blocks, then drop back to the mid-front afterwards. It was 11.23 p.m. when the convoy finally started pushing into the city. Remember, we've had two different convoys try to reach the men on Marahan Road in the first crash site. So throughout the day, they've been told help will be there in an hour or 40 minutes. It got to be a joke among the soldiers. They're on their way, boys, guys would say, and they'd laugh. Finally, in the middle of the night, they stopped laughing. The men could hear the relief convoy on the way. The men could literally track the movements of the convoy by the sound of the gunfire and by the way the sky lit up over it. Here's how one author described the convoy's battle to the crash site. By midnight, the rescue convoy was getting close. The men pinned down listened to the low rumble of nearly 100 vehicles, tanks, armored personnel carriers, and Humvees. 
The thunderclap of its guns edged ever closer. It had been a pitched battle much of the way in. Two of the Malaysian drivers had taken a wrong turn and driven about 30 men off in the wrong direction. They'd been ambushed and caught up in a severe firefight, and one of them had been mortally wounded. The banging of gunfire was constant, most of it coming from the convoy, which stretched so far in both directions. If you sat in the middle, you couldn't see the front or the end. Night vision gave the men in the convoy a huge advantage over the Somalis. Specialist Dale Sizemore was spread out on his stomach in the back of a Humvee, just looking for people to shoot. Most of the time, he couldn't see whether he'd hit anyone or not. At one point, a spray of sparks flew up in his face. He turned his head to discover a fist-sized hole in the Humvee wall, just inches from his head. He hadn't even felt it. No one in the convoy had lights on, but muzzle flashes and explosions lit up the whole line. In the reflected light, he saw two dead donkeys by the side of the road. The air was filled with diesel fumes, and through the open side windows of the Humvee, you could smell the gunpowder from weapons mingling with burning tires and trash and the general pungent, rotten smell of Somalia itself. In a sudden volley of gunfire, an RPG round bounced off one of the Humvee's hoods. The explosion a few feet away sounded like somebody had dropped an empty dumpster off a roof. The men inside felt the concussion like a blow to the inside of your chest, and then they smelled smoke. Holy crap! What was that? exclaimed Specialist David Eastbrooks, who was driving. Oh Jesus, said another soldier, as the men in the Humvees fished out red light flashlights and they shot it on Lamb. He had a trickle of blood running down his face, a neat small hole right in the middle of his forehead. He had taken a round, literally, right between the eyes. How does it look? asked Lamb. The old the other soldiers looked at each other uncomfortably. They couldn't believe he wasn't dead. Lamb wrapped a bandage around his head. Doctors would later determine that a piece of shrapnel had lodged between the frontal lobes of his brain, missing vital tissues by fractions of an inch in either direction. Later, Lamb took a bullet in his right pinky, which was left hanging by a piece of skin. Lamb just swore, stuck the fingertip back on, wrapped it with a piece of duct tape, and continued fighting. Chris, what do you think of this kind of fortitude? Gunshot, no problem. A little duct tape. Uh, yeah, that's, that's rub some dirt on it, dude. Take a lap. <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah, intestinal fortitude. Ugh. Meanwhile, in the convoy, there would be long periods of relative quiet, then suddenly the night would explode with light and noise. One or two shots from the dark houses on both sides of the street would trigger a violent of explosion of return fire from the column. Up and down the line, tracers splashed out from the long convoy, literally thousands of rounds and seconds, just hosing down whole blocks of buildings with withering fire. Half of the rescue convoy had steered to the second crash site where Durant was captured, but they had gotten lost on the outskirts of the ghetto-like village of Rags and Tin Huts where Super 6-4 had gone down. In the darkness, the unmapped maze of huts and shacks and the footpaths leading into the village looked potentially deadly. It was like probing directly into the heart of the hornet's nest. As the convoy aiming for the second crash site circled the third time, Sergeant John Mace, the fearless blonde Delta operator, slipped off a Humvee and led a small force to the crash site on foot. Around the wreckage, they found pools and trails of blood, torn bits of clothing and bullet shells everywhere, but no weapons and no signs of Chagart, Gordon, or Durant. The men searched the huts near the crash site, seeking information, but no one offered any. The small team set thermite grenades on the helicopter. When the wreck was a ball of white flame, 
they returned to the convoy. The other convoy was still snaking its way to the first crash site, but were held up by a massive roadblock. The Malaysians flatly refused to drive through it because the roadblocks were often mined. The convoy stalled as the soldiers dismounted from the relative security of the vehicles and dismantled the roadblock by hand. Finally, after what seemed like hours, the convoy moved past the roadblock. The Americans who had dismounted to take down the roadblock led the convoy by foot as the vehicles (laughs) followed behind them. All you can say is why. Just why. why. Yeah. <laughs> Finally, elements of the 10th, 10th Mountain Division linked up with Captain Steele and his rangers at the southernmost point of the first crash. Hey, position. guys, they're here. <laughs> no, there actually are. Yeah. Yay! It took hours to pry the bodies out of the, down, of the down crew from the first helicopter wreck. They had saws and special equipment, but the cockpit was lined with Kevlar that destroyed saw blades. As the men worked to remove the bodies from the chopper, the wounded were literally smashed into the APCs while the dead were macabrely placed on top of the personnel carriers. PJ Medic Wilkinson climbed into the back of an APC. The closed steel container was like a sauna and it reeked of blood and urine. Finally, after the dead crew were loaded into the convoy's vehicles, the Rangers and Delta operators faced a new enemy, space. These men, who had unceasingly fought for 14 hours straight, were forced to run back to base. The anxious Malaysian drivers had taken off, leaving the rest of the force behind. It was unbelievable. They were going to have to make a run for it. It was 5.45 a.m. October 4th on a Monday. The sun was dawning as they ran, fighting tooth and nail as they went. One ranger who was there explains what it was like in the convoy. You know, step a couple of feet real quick and jump up on the back of it. And uh, I remember kind of falling over on top of somebody off over the side of this Humvee. And I thought, I think right then was probably when it really hit me uh, that I really, it, it was kind of scary because I was, I felt falling over on my back on the Humvee. Um, we're, t- we're driving through the streets here. People are still shooting. And I, I wasn't in a position I couldn't return any fire. And I remember thinking, boy, uh, you know, I, I'm going to get shot, and I can't do it. I can't do a damn thing about it. I am. Um, I remember just thinking that we're driving like Jesus. Hope we get over to the crash site really quick so I can get out of here. Right. Um, that is the only thing because this is just really, uh, it's a very hopeless feeling. Um, you know, not to be able to even. Shoot. The Delta operators and rangers who were jogging out were supposed to have cover, but the Malay driver sped away, leaving them exposed. Mark Bowman picks up the story, quote, The whole force ran the same route the main force had used. They stopped at each intersection to spray covering fire and sprinted across one by one, covering each other in the process. The rangers shot at every window and door. Their legs felt like dead weights, dragging them down and refused to go on. Only an act of supreme will made their minds override their body's desire to lay down and rest. Eventually, they ran back to where they had started it all, back at the original target building. Rounds were bouncing off the vehicles that were blocks ahead of the men. They could see the APCs breaking down from the withering fire, and now they had to run through it. The final marathon of the Americans at Mogadishu is worthy of a homer. They ran. They obeyed. Sergeant Randy Ramaglia was running across an intersection when he felt a blow to his shoulder like a sledgehammer. He'd been shot, 
He paused for a few seconds, just standing there, exposed as a woman on her wedding night. As his senses returned to him, he realized he couldn't move his arm. The round had scooped out a golf ball-sized chunk of Randy's back. He couldn't believe some piss-ant Somali had tagged him. He continued to run, bleeding, cursing, and shooting anything. Windows, doorways, alleyways, and especially people. They were all going to die. Randy suddenly willed God to destroy the city around him, level it and salt it like a second Carthage. He looked around. Everyone else was just running like fighting madmen with wild looks in their eyes past the point of no return. None of these men would ever be the same. Still the men ran. One man involuntarily threw up and kept running as he did it, taking the time to shoot at Somalis. The helicopter still provided cover overhead, spraying the roofs around the men as they ran, sending chunks of buildings and hot metal shell casings raining down on them. Finally, the first elements driven by the Malaysians arrived at the soccer stadium in the north end of the city. It was a Pakistani base. The Rangers couldn't believe what they saw as they entered the stadium. The wounded were on litters and they filled half the field. Imagine that. A professional soccer field overflowing with wounded. Doctors and nurses huddled over the worst of them, working furiously. The dead were stacked in neat rows, each zipper tagged and in a body bag. Those who were not wounded walked among the litters on the soccer pitch. With tears in their eyes or looking drained and emotionless, it was the thousand-mile stare. The Battle of Mogadishu was over. It would become famous in the epic movie, Black Hawk Down. 19 Americans were killed, 73 were wounded, one was captured. Soon after, American civilians were dumbfounded when they saw the chaotic scenes from Somalia and the crying widows of the dead soldiers. They demanded a withdrawal. Then President Bill Clinton was aghast. This wasn't what he wanted. America withdrew. Some, the Somalis ref, suffered around 350 killed. They had around 800 wounded. These numbers are estimates. There's no accurate count. In June of 1995, Adid declared himself President of Somalia. However, his declaration was not recognized by any other nation. Moreover, his rival, Ali Mahadi Muhammad, had been elected interim president at a Somali conference months before. Ali Muhammad was recognized by the international community as president of Somalia. In late July 1996, Adid's troops clashed with Ali Muhammad's soldiers, and Adid was shot three times in the battle. He died a week later. Adid, who had successfully avoided tens of thousands of United Nations soldiers, who had starved hundreds of thousands of his countrymen, who ruled over towns and cities, was brought low by stray bullets from an untrained militiaman. Once men and women alike had feared him. Widows were created and spared by then his word. He was now dead. I am reminded of a quote from Richard III. Bloody thou art, and bloody was thy end. Thanks for listening, everybody. That was another great episode of Battlecast. And we really appreciate it if you'd stop by the website and contribute to the beer fund. Throw please. Us shekels. Please. My wife wonders why I spend so much time doing this. Please. <laughs> and remember to hit the subscribe button on your iTunes or your Android device, whatever you're using. Also, leave us a five-star review. If not, Luke cries and I get a million sad texts about starving children and sober dad. <laughs> get more Battlecast by going to thebattlecast.com where you can find bonus content, maps, book reports, and more <laughs> for free! If you haven't had any questions, please email us at battlecastnet at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook, and I promise to update it with my goings-on and episodes and hopefully pictures from the Rose Bowl. <laughs> All right, and that's it for me here in the North Atlanta Ivory Tower. 
I want to thank everyone who's written in, shared on social media, subscribed, sent us a message. I can't believe the outpouring of support we've received, and I'm very grateful you've taken the time to listen to stories of bravery and savagery no one else will tell. You listening to this right now, you make my dreams come true. Wife, and eh, not so much. And I'll check out, check out. I love my <laughs> wife and family. And once again, I'm Luke wishing you good times and good weather with good people. Bye. Bye, everybody. <laughs> So we're we gonna go get get some brews, man. <laughs>